0: Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. Welcome to episode 36 of Discovering the Old Testament, where we will continue where we left off with the prophet Jeremiah and continue on with a shorter book, Lamentations. In our previous installment, we talked about the life and times of Jeremiah, and they were not pleasant times for the prophet or for the Jewish people. Jeremiah lived from a time of hope under the young reformer King Josiah to a time of utter despair as he watched his beloved Jerusalem fall to the Babylonians jeremiah has become synonymous with gloomy prophecy especially uttered as a futile gesture against what seems in retrospect to be the inevitable bad fortune and death our word for a dire prediction jeremiad recalls the despairing character of much of his writing The situation for Judah near the beginning of the 6th century BCE was deteriorating fast. One hardly needed to be a prophet to see what was going on as far as Jerusalem was concerned. To use a biblical metaphor, pretty much everyone could read the writing on the wall. One of the characteristics of a prophet is to point out what was not expected or intended jeremiah had already predicted the doom of jerusalem in his prophetic mano, mano with the false prophet hananiah but now with the fall of jerusalem nearly or already accomplished a new message was needed just as things looked as dark as they could get for the jews jeremiah the great kahuna of buzzkill offers a message of hope when Jeremiah began his ministry he was commissioned, quote, to uproot and break down, to demolish and destroy, to build and to plant, close quote. Now that everything was uprooted, broken down, demolished and destroyed, it was time to build and plant. As before, as with other prophets before him, Jeremiah used actions and gestures to communicate his message, often at the expense of personal dignity, such as wearing a yoke as if he were an ox. But this time the message is one of hope for the future. Jeremiah buys a family farm in chapter 32, in spite of the fact that the land was already under the control of the Babylonians. In another case, Jeremiah calls upon the people to surrender to the Babylonians, since their rule would not last, and they would be gone before long. The year 598 B.C.E. was a tumultuous one for Judah. It was the first defeat of Jerusalem by Babylon, in which the cream of Jewish society, along with her most talented artisans and intellectuals, were exiled to Babylon. To those in this first exile, Jeremiah pens a letter now found in chapter 29, in which he predicts that in seventy years God would restore them back to their land of promise. As it happened, he was only off by twenty years, but we should note that seventy was one of those numbers that was often used metaphorically to refer to a long but still finite period of time. Jeremiah's message of hope truly gains momentum in chapters thirty and thirty-one, often called his Book of Consolation. This is a sort of mini-anthology of prophetic statements that seem to come from all previous parts of Jeremiah's prophetic career. We assume as much because some of these oracles are addressed to Israel, which could refer to the period of King Josiah when there were still a few remnants of the North Kingdom hanging around, in spite of the fact that the North Kingdom of Israel was itself long gone. These chapters are replete with images of healing and restored fertility, singing, and joy, very much unlike the stereotypical Jeremiah. Not surprisingly, we see talk of a new covenant, but it is very different from what we have seen in the past. In this instance, there is a clear acknowledgement that Israel has not and cannot keep the covenant of God under their own power, one might say. In addition to the covenant written in the Torah, God will now also write the covenant in the hearts of Israel. In other words, God will grant Israel the strength they lacked before to live the covenant in full. It is an early expression of the concept of divine grace. Later in Christian tradition, this passage had tremendous influence on the interpretation of the crucifixion of Jesus and Christian soteriology. But getting back to Jeremiah, he does make an exception to his messages of hope. After the first exile of 598, a second siege led to the final fall and destruction of Jerusalem in 586. In this second instance, after the second fall, there were still a sizable number of people who lived among the ruins or in the surrounding countryside, and who constituted a shadow of a remnant. Jeremiah apparently did not think that these people were willing or able to carry out the reforms that would bring about a revival of leadership and piety needed for a restoration of Israel. Only the ones who had been carried off to Babylon would be able to do that. To illustrate the point, Jeremiah made reference to two baskets of figs. One was good, the other rotten. In this visual image, the good figs are the citizens of Judah in exile. The rotten ones were those who remained in the wreckage of the former state of Judah. Even later, near the end of his prophetic career as an unwilling exile himself in Egypt, Jeremiah refused to offer and would not even allow any word of encouragement for those who had looked for safety outside of Babylon. It was apparently his idea that only through the experience of the Babylonian exile would form the foundations of a new Jerusalem and a new Judah. Incidentally, one thing that bears mention is that this particular period of Israelite history is quite well documented by extra-biblical sources. One of these is a set of potsherds with writing on them. Broken pottery was a convenient and readily available writing material, often used for temporary documents, like receipts, or drafts for more formal documents. In this case, a set of such fragments, called ostraca, were discovered at the city of Lachish, one of the more formidable fortresses of Judah. Discovered in 1935, the lachish ostraca are from the time when the Babylonian army was rampaging through Judah. They consist of military correspondence and reports. One of these letters is from a subordinate defending himself to a superior regarding a letter he was apparently not supposed to have read. Another report from another city reports that they can no longer see the fire beacon from Azekah which was another Jewish fortress, with the implied fear that the city had already fallen. Another remarkable bit of evidence from this period comes from Jerusalem itself, and from a nondescript building that served as a small archive. The records housed in such archives usually were of a business sort. Property deeds, business agreements, documents dealing with inheritance. They were written on papyrus or parchment, rolled up tightly, and bound with twine. Then a wad of soft clay was placed on top of the knot, binding the document together, and an official would impress his stamp seal or sigil into the clay, and the clay allowed to dry. These seals bore the full name of the official presiding over the transaction this was a way of ensuring that the document remained intact and prevented tampering in fact jeremiah chapter thirty two describes exactly this process unfortunately air-dried clay impressions are not very robust from an archaeological perspective however jerusalem's misfortune proved a boon to archaeologists when the babylonians seized the city They burned the archive house, and many of the clay seals were hardened in the heat of the blaze. Much later, when archaeologists excavated down to the Babylonian destruction layer, they recovered over fifty of the small round clay seals, all in perfect condition. One of these seals was particularly significant because it bore the name of Gemariah son of Shapan who is mentioned several times in Jeremiah as the royal secretary for King Jehoiakim, son of Josiah. Another seal was at one time believed to bear the name of Baruch, Jeremiah's own personal scribe, but that reading is now in dispute. Nonetheless, Gemariah's seal is a remarkable historical tie-in that lends credibility to the picture Jeremiah provides of Judah's last days as an independent kingdom. of the destruction of judah and jerusalem according to jeremiah were legion but they can be broken down into two major categories the first consisted of a clumsy and ham-handed foreign policy in trying to navigate between a resurgent babylon the machinations of egypt and the usual local squabbles with neighboring powers but when jeremiah gets down to the nitty-gritty in chapter twenty two HE SPEAKS DIRECTLY TO THE KING HIMSELF, AND IS ABOUT AS SUBTLE AS A kosher BASEBALL BAT. WOE TO HIM WHO BUILDS HIS HOUSE BY UNRIGHTEOUSNESS, AND HIS UPPER ROOMS BY INJUSTICE, WHO MAKES HIS NEIGHBORS WORK FOR NOTHING, AND DOES NOT GIVE THEM THEIR WAGES, WHO SAYS, I WILL BUILD MYSELF A SPACIOUS HOUSE, WITH LARGE UPPER ROOMS, AND WHO CUTS OUT WINDOWS FOR IT, PANELING IT WITH CEDAR and painting it with vermilion. Are you a king because you compete in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well. Is not this known to me, says the Lord? But your eyes and your heart are only on your dishonest gain for shedding innocent blood and for practicing oppression and violence. Therefore says the Lord concerning King Jehoiakim, son of Josiah of Judah, They shall not lament for him, saying, Alas for my brother, or alas sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, Alas, Lord, or alas his majesty. With the burial of a donkey he shall be buried, dragged off and thrown out, beyond the gates of Jerusalem. Even as prophetic diatribes go, that's pretty harsh, but this is something that we see in other prophets from this time, whether we are talking about the major prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah, or minor prophets like Amos or Hosea. As we've seen in the past, biblical scholarship recognizes that the Old Testament is an Effort to unravel the question of what went wrong, why Israel failed to realize her promised blessings. There are two recognized schools of thought in the Bible, one being the Deuteronomistic view that failure to observe the terms of the covenant made with Abraham and Moses are to blame. Another view, represented in the works of Ezra, Nehemiah, and the books of Chronicles, blames the departure from proper forms of worship for the disaster. But I think we can state fairly that the prophetic works that survived constitute a third opinion, and that is that an unjust society, one that tolerates the abuse and victimization of the vulnerable by the powerful, simply cannot survive. One need not rely on an assumption of divine recompense or theodicy to make this claim, There are good sociological reasons why societies where people look out for each other are stronger and more robust. This would take us beyond the scope of this podcast, but suffice to say that recent studies of early Christianity demonstrate that their penchant for aiding the poor was in fact a very powerful factor that allowed them to displace their pagan competitors over time. Meanwhile we must return to the fortunes of Jerusalem, and a short book called Lamentations. For many years it was presumed that this book was written by Jeremiah, even though the book itself makes no such claim. More recently his authorship uh, has become no longer accepted. For one thing the gender of the speaker changes. In the first and second poems the gender is feminine. but the speaker reverts to masculine in the third. However, it does seem to reflect the times to which it is ascribed. Chapters four and five draw a very accurate portrait of the kinds of suffering and privations that would have accompanied the fall and destruction of Jerusalem. There are images of mourning, might, and high status humiliated, but also of unburied corpses and mothers forced to eat their own children. The Babylonians carried out their destruction of the city with ruthless efficiency. In addition to burning houses and official buildings, the temple was burned and dismantled. The walls were also destroyed, along with anything that could be used as a shelter. The objective was to prevent anyone from living there ever again. Lamentations, as a literary document, also makes extensive use of acrostics which is the practice of using the first letter of a succession of lines or verses to spell out something. In this case, the first letter of each verse in chapters 1, 2, and 4 spell out the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, which has 22 letters. Chapter 3 has 66 verses, with three verses for each letter. Chapter 5 has 22 verses, but there's no apparent acrostic. In form, The book contains elements of a funeral dirge for the city. We find elements of this genre in ancient Sumerian Lamentations, in which the poet mourns a city abandoned by its god or gods and left to destruction. Lamentations also expresses sentiments consistent with what Isaiah articulates elsewhere, blaming the fall of the city on the sins of its people. However, Lamentations also makes mention of false prophets and oracles that prevented the people from realizing the nature and depth of their misdeeds and what the consequences would be. The literary core of the book, however, is in chapter 3, verses 22-24, where the tone and content of the book changes dramatically from one of utter loss and destruction to hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. A word about that phrase, steadfast love. This is a word that comes up from time to time in the Old Testament, particularly among the prophets, but other places as well. It describes a kind of love that is immune to anything that the object of that love could do. It's rather like the love of a parent for a wayward child, a love that persists no matter how poorly the child behaves or what they do. Implicit in this word is the hope and eventual mercy on which Jeremiah and other prophets hung their hopes for renewal and revival even if it was just a small fragment of the nation that once was. As the chapter continues, the author makes the argument that if the Lord can so completely decimate and devastate his own people, he likewise has the power to rebuild what was destroyed. The God of Lamentations is a God of justice, for whom punishment is finite, measured to the offence. Those enemies who brought down Israel will receive their punishment in due course. But for God's people, this is a time for reflection and repentance. At the same time, Lamentations ends with a sense of uncertainty. The last two verses of chapter 5 raise the possibility that God may have rejected and abandoned Judah for good. Restore to us yourself, O Lord, THAT WE MAY BE RESTORED, RENEW OUR DAYS AS OF OLD, UNLESS YOU HAVE UTTERLY REJECTED US, AND ARE ANGRY WITH US BEYOND MEASURE. THAT UNCERTAINTY WOULD DRAG OUT THROUGH THE FIFTY YEARS OF EXILE IN BABYLON. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S-Press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament.